Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Genetics. What can it mean? The ability to perfect the physical and mental characteristics of every unborn child. In the not-too-distant future, our DNA will determine everything about us. A minute drop of blood, saliva, or a single hair determines where you can work who you should marry, what you're capable of achieving. Welcome to Gattaca. Also, welcome to Science Sesh. In this podcast, what we do is we take a work of fiction uh, and then we examine the science within it by asking three big searching questions and very occasionally we answer those questions. Um, as ever, very occasionally. Very occasionally. As ever, I'm joined by Dr. Michael Brooks, whose catchphrase is... Hello. Just there is genuinely no one in the business who says hello with such panache and... What is Thank it? You. A brooding passion. I think so. <laughs> Uh, tonight we're going to be looking at one of my favourite films, uh, the 1997 masterpiece Gattaca. And we've actually, and we are very, uh, very loath to mention this, as you'll know if you follow us on Twitter or Facebook, we've written a science-ish book, um, which will be out on the 5th of October, and I don't really want to go into it, um, but you can pre-order it. Um, I don't want to talk about the fact we'll be at the back of the room signing it. It's just, it's very, it's very grubby, so just, let's just pretend that's not happening. But it is at the, at the end of it, we'll be at the back. Um, but if we could just stop talking about it, I'd appreciate it. Um, ordinarily, one of us would do a, a very quick plot summary, but we are putting on a screening of the film at 7.30. I actually don't know where... Somewhere in the town. Just, so just down that. here. That's or perfect. So in here. So it's really easy. Um, so we want to avoid spoilers because you should go and see the film because it's great. Um, but the basic premise is um, it's set in a future where genetic determinism rules. So you have two casts of people, uh, genetically superior elites um, called valids and then genetically inferior kind of underclass called invalids. And invalids just do all the, kind of the, the menial jobs and the cleaning and so on and the valids get to wear very nice suits. Um, and Ethan Hawke is an invalid who wants to be an astronaut but that is a job reserved for valids. So he tries to figure out a way to um, 
to cheat the genetic screening that the, that the system employs. That's the basic setup. And the first question uh, that we're going to ask is, are we more than our genes? Um, and this is something that we put to... Do you want to say anything? I feel like I've been talking for... I'm, I'm just enjoying it so far. Can you are? On, on. Everyone else enjoy it? I mean, you can hear more from Michael, but once you start him up, please... Uh... <laughs> no, so we'll leave you for a bit. Yeah, yeah. OK. That's fine. Um, to try and help us answer the, the it's a first... Nice viewer, yeah. uh, well, shut up. Um, <laughs> to try and help us answer the first question, we spoke with the Open University's Emeritus Professor of Neuroscience and Biology, Stephen Rose, uh, and Professor Stephen started off by giving us a little recap... Um, on exactly what a gene is. The very word gene is complicated. When the term was invented, um, something just over a hundred and some years ago, it meant one thing, but over the course of the century and a bit since the word was invented, the idea of what constitutes a gene has constantly changed. So perhaps the best way to look at it is this. All the cells in our body are primarily composed of proteins, of carbohydrates and of fats. Proteins are very long, complicated molecules and to make them, and they're constantly being made and broken down in the cell, you have to have some store of information, a sort of code, if you like, a chemical code on which the proteins can be made. That code, that store of information is DNA. DNA is a set of four different types of molecule arranged in a long, long sequence. There are three billion of them in the human genome, for example. A genome means the whole of the DNA in any living organism. So the way that a gene works is that when the cell has need of a particular protein being made, it activates a strand, a section of the DNA, and then on the basis of the section of the DNA which is activated, new proteins can be synthesized. Most living creatures are launched into life from a microscopically small fertilized egg. And throughout the various stages of growth, a series of complex processes must function perfectly if the final result, be it a giraffe or a tree, a sheep or a man, is to be recognizably the offspring of its parents. There are perhaps um, 10, even 50 trillion cells in the human body. Each of them contains a slightly different subset of the proteins that are there. And as we know, life begins with the fusion of an egg and a sperm. The egg and sperm both contain the DNA partly from the father and partly from the mother. And this DNA is used as the store of information on which the whole of the organism subsequently develops. As the cells divide and the organism grows, so different bits of DNA are used at different times. Which bits are used and how they are modified depends on changes in the environment, what's called epigenetics, um, different ways of activating and using different bits of the DNA. And from that is derived eventually the entire organism. And the way in which the terms are used, the word genotype is the word for really the genome. It is the individual genome of any particular person is their genotype. That is all of their DNA. Phenotype is any characteristic of that person. For example, you've got eyes which are brown or eyes which are blue or eyes which are green. And the phenotype would be called, would be blue eyes or brown eyes or 
a phenotype could be um, the way the heart is beating. It could be almost any aspect of the organism as it is developed. Proteins consist of about 20 different kinds of amino acids combined in a specific predetermined sequence. These small sections of hemoglobin, myoglobin, ribonuclease and lysozyme illustrate the essential similarity of proteins, whose seemingly small differences, however, are so vital to the life process. This is lysozyme, with 129 amino acids linked together. The problem with the way that the word gene has used is that it has become widely sort of popularly used and in a way which for many geneticists is a little uncomfortable. You can talk about a gene for something, a gene for blue eyes or whatever it might be, but there are no genes for anything in reality. It's a sort of shorthand. If during the course of development you're going to build a blue eye, you first of all have to have the whole organism developing, you have to have the hundreds of different proteins and cells involved in the construction of the eye. And at the very end of that particular sequence, one bit of DNA is it may be or may not be there. If it's not there, you get blue eyes, and if it is there, you'll get brown eyes. And so that bit of the genome, which may be there or not there, for a shorthand, you say, is a gene for something or another. But obviously it isn't. You have to consider the entire body and the entire set of genomes and that's why a lot of mystification has come about by the way that particularly at the excitement over the understanding of the structure of DNA the sequencing of the human genome and so on people began to use these metaphors of the gene as a blueprint the gene as a code of codes the gene as the book of life all of you is present in this particular sort of sequence not so what the genome is, what DNA is, simply a store of chemical sequences which can be tapped into and used by the cell. The active component in this process of development is not the DNA. The DNA is inert. If the DNA wasn't inert, you wouldn't be able to sequence DNA from Neanderthals or ancient hominids or dinosaurs, for example. What gives life and activities to the DNA is the cell which draws upon chemically the different bits of DNA it needs in order to create and in order to develop at any given moment. So just during that, this is Max, our producer, just held up a sign that said, introduce yourself, which is a reasonable point. Hello, I'm Rick. <laughs> Should absolutely have said that at the top. I know, I know. I was just so excited to get into it. Um, so what... Um, I'm Michael. I introduced you. I said, this is Dr Michael Brooks, and you did your stupid hello. Oh, OK, sorry. <laughs> um, I just feel left out sometimes, you know? What to say? Get involved. All right. I'll ask you a question. I'm involved. I'm involved. Professor, Professor Stephen there... He talked about the you know, so-called Book of Life, uh, and it's interesting because when this film was released in 1997, it was at the peak of kind of excitement around the human genome and the mapping of the human genome and the promise um, of, of you know, eradicating you know, disease. You know, James Watson from, from DNA, from DNA itself, um, he said uh, that for a long time we thought that our fate was in the stars, and now it turns out that in large measure... 
our fate is in our genes. And people were genuinely pumped about this. And so when the film came out, it kind of skewered this genetic determinism. Scientists weren't overly sort of enamoured with it and got quite a lot of criticism in scientific journals. But the truth is, the film, the film gets it right. It is yeah. a lot more complicated yeah. than it just being in genes, isn't it? Um, the, the film was really very, very prescient because uh, at this very time when everybody was hearing this rhetoric about you know, the Book of Life and we're just about to decode the recipe for making a human being, uh, this film came out with its catch line is, uh, you know, the, you, there's no gene for the human spirit. And you're, you're in a position where you're just kind of told that actually um, you know, genes really, really matter. But it's really important to, to note that actually the genes are just part of the story. And the genes encode uh, instructions for making proteins, and, but also the proteins that they make will affect the, the way a gene is expressed and uh, they will affect the, the way genes are, are made. Uh, there are all kinds of sort of influences on, on the genes, like the environment, if you have pollution, uh, what, what you eat actually will change the way genes express and turn them on and off. So all of this adds up to these amazing kind of differences. So there are a few things that are encoded in your genes or in sets of genes. So things like eye colour and whether you have hair on your knuckles. <laughs> or is that just me? Right. No, not just you. No, it's not just me. If you have dimples in your cheeks, that's, you know, the, the little genetic things there. But actually, most of the bigger things, you know, that, that's not just about which genes are in this recipe that we've decoded. And what about epigenetics? You touched on this idea that genes can be turned on or off. Yeah. Which is quite crucial, because you've got this sequence, but then some might just not be working, and they might burst into life. It's an incredibly, uh, I mean, it's a very new field uh, of science, actually. And, it, and it's to do with the sort of effect of, of pollution, of stress is a big factor as well. Uh, stress in your body releases certain chemicals that will inhibit uh, the action of certain genes or turn them on and, and make them function. And then they'll make proteins which will affect your, your body's structure, it will affect your health. And, and also, and those, those effects can be heritable as well. So some of on. these effects, we think, are passed down the generations as well. Uh, so there, there have been um, some studies that have shown that uh, things like overeating in one generation, a, a glut in a harvest or whatever, can affect uh, obesity a couple of generations down. A stressful environment is known to have an epigenetic effect on the inheritability of uh, schizophrenia, for instance, and, uh, and other disorders. Uh, so that was proved on studies that, people, uh, that went through an extreme famine during the Second World War uh, called the Dutch uh, Hunger Study. So, so there are interesting effects. We're really only just unravelling them, though, so it's difficult to make really strong claims at the moment. Uh, and we've not even really spoken about the effects of environment um, on, on your genes. There's something like, there are some incredibly complicated traits that you might see, so intelligence is probably the, the classic one. I don't know if you want to touch on that, if you've got time. <laughs> I mean, yeah, intelligence is, is, there are genetic aspects to intelligence, and scientists have found, you know, they've kind of isolated 40 or so genes that they think are definitely involved, and they suspect there's probably tens or even hundreds of thousands of genes that will interact on each other. And the interplay between genes is really important as well, to create, you know, the kind of template for intelligence that you might have. But that is almost nothing compared with things like environment and education and training. And actually, it's really difficult to define intelligence as well. You know, if you define it using you know, the measure, measure IQ, intelligence quotient, actually, that's a really quite a dodgy measure of, of intelligence because it depends on a kind of Western education, a Western mindset. Also, hasn't the, the average IQ gone up by 30, 
30 points in the 20th century and yeah. our brains haven't really changed. Our brains have not evolved that much during the 20th century, so we can fairly, you know, we can loosen that link between yeah. IQ and genetics. Um, any, any questions at this, at this juncture? Yes. Wait for the, wait for the microphone. The gentleman is, he's walking fairly slowly, but he is coming. <laughs> there he is. Okay. Uh, th thanks very much. That was a really, really interesting introduction. Um, I'd just like to talk about two things. Um, just go for one. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay, they're, they're linked. <laughs> um, epigenetics and, and the multifactorial aspect of many phenotypes. Mm. To my mind, that means that some of the stuff that's been done just now with CRISPR and gene editing is fine, but, but as a molecular biologist myself, I just don't see a route to genetic improvement at the moment. And I wondered if, if you would like to comment on that. I, I just don't see, I just, I, just, I just think these two things are, uh, nothing's intractable, but, but it's, a, it's a huge issue. It is a huge so, issue yeah. and one that we are going to get to. Yeah, I think we're going to come on to exactly that point uh, uh, later on. So well, well anticipated. Uh, any, anyone with a question that isn't uh, one of our later questions? <laughs> That's fine. There really there doesn't have to be. Can, am I allowed to ask the audience questions? Is that, is, does that work? Yeah, it's yeah, totally okay. free form. Can I ask you as a molecular biologist, do you think that um, some of the, the um, talk about the genome in the late 90s was overhyped and, and about... Uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I think... I think for a start, the science isn't there just now. I, I just think it's just not there. I think I just heard something in Radio 4 in the Chinese lab. Um, I can't remember what gene they, they took out on a, um, one of these unifactorial diseases. Mm. But they did it in the human embryos. And, a, a human embryo, and I, I don't think that we're there yet for, for, the, for, for that kind of stuff. It kind of concerns well, me a wee bit. Um, from, from, not just from them ethical point of view, but even from the scientific point of view, it concerns me, yeah. Yeah, I, I think people are very interested now in, in producing a kind of epi, epigenome roadmap. That's, that's the kind of next thing on the agenda, sort of one step beyond the mapping of the human genome, which obviously we're now pretty good at looking at what all of these individual markers, epigenetic markers, are doing. And CRISPR, because you can literally go in, and we will come on to what CRISPR is, go in and turn individual genes on, on and off, and then look at effects possibly at very early stage embryos, then you might be able to start drawing useful conclusions. I think that's... Mm. And that is, that is happening, you know, but it's, in, in London. It's in the, the future, isn't it? Yeah, but, well, it is literally in the future of this podcast. Um, <laughs> so we're going to go on to... Uh, um, what are we going to do? Second question? Just yeah. go on to the second question, Max? Yeah, fine. Um, so, in the world of Gattaca, Ethan Hawke's character says that his resume is in his cells, so it doesn't matter how well he does in an interview, they're just going to look in his cells and they're going to say, you're not suitable for this job. Uh, so our second question is, should we be using genetics to predict our destiny, um, which is also known as genetic determinism? Professor Stephen again. Genetic determinism is the idea that in some senses we are so shaped and, and fixed 
by our DNA, by our genome, that if you like, the whole of our future is mapped out in front of us. We are going to be an intelligent person, we're going to be a gay person, we're going to have a particular job, have a particular or political orientation or whatever it might be, because those are embedded in some way in our genes. Now, everything I've been arguing says that as this is not the way that genes actually work or genes are understood by biologists. And that's therefore, is the claim that almost nothing that happens during our development, during our interactions as we grow up with the environment, with the social world in which we live, with culture, with technology, has any influence on this determinism which has actually shaped us from birth. And of course, it's a very um, powerful political dimension to genetic determinism as well. Because if, for example, your intelligence is determined from birth, there is no point in educating someone who is as a low IQ um, beyond a certain point because they are, they are fixed in that sort of way. Flight got you nervous? Well, there's a problem, Lamar. I never did tell you about my son, did I? He's a big fan of yours. Just remember that I was as good as any and better than most. He wants to apply here. I could have gone up and back and nobody would have been the wiser. Unfortunately, my son's not all that they promised. But then who knows what he could do. Future reference? Right-handed men don't hold it with their left. Just one of those things. Now, there is a sort of obverse to genetic determinism which used to be talked about as well, which is, if you like, a sort of a cultural or social determinism, that you're born in a particular environment, in a particular culture, in a particular sort of way, and that culture determines where you go and what you could actually do. Now, they're not exactly two sides of the same coin because the genetic determinism argument is much more powerful than the cultural determinism argument because it seems to have the imprimatur, the fixture of biology and science says about it, whatever we might mean about science says, it's a convenient way of talking and it has been very popular over the years. What I think we know even more than ever before, partly as a result of the sequencing of the human genome, the development of epigenetics, which has revealed not merely the incredible complexity of the genes, but the increasing complexity of the way that cells use genes during development, and development shapes the pattern and the ways in which DNA operates. What we know is that the future for any individual is, I would say, radically indeterminate. That is, we make our own future, though in circumstances not of our own choosing. And the same is, of course, true for, um, in evolutionary terms, for the species. The future of any species is radically indeterminate as well, constantly being shaped by the exigencies of the environment around it and the way that we as individuals act on and transform our own environment. And this idea of radical indeterminacy gives us space to act. It gives us space to live and help shape our own futures. So basically, Professor Stephen, not a fan of genetic determinism no. at all. 
No, it, it's a, and you read in the papers, don't you? You say things like, oh, you know, there's a there's a gay gene or there's a slut gene, and none of this is true. Mm. And you know, as we said before, I mean, I, I actually you know, in 2015 when I was at the very peak of my midlife crisis, I was very excited at the discovery of the gene AVPR1A, uh, which became known as the infidelity gene. <laughs> Because I knew full well that uh, my uh, infidelity, pretty much looking at my family history, does run all the way up, you know. And so I kind of thought, well, okay, well, if it happens, it's not really my fault, is it? I'm, I'm sure I can uh, complete this. And then, to my absolute disgust, uh, what they found was actually that this, uh, this gene is found to be associated with infidelity in women and not at all in men. And there is no genetic excuse for infidelity in men out there, just so you know. So, and none of these things are, are excuses for behavior. All they are are kind of, you know, there, there are possibly uh, traits that you have inherited, possibilities that you've inherited, but yeah, none of them are, are telling you this is how you're going to behave. No, you have genes which influence traits, very broad inclinations, but you don't have genes that influence behavior display behavior, which are kind of current situation sensitive responses. So you can have like a novelty seeking gene. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that can express itself in a whole range of ways. So it may be that you, you sleep with loads of people or, or you, and, and you drink loads, or it may be that you just have lots of friends and you, and you like to travel. And that's the kind of range of, of behavioral effects you can see from, from a single gene. Uh, and then you have things like there was, was it 2005 when the warrior gene was uh, yeah, much uh, in there? Yeah, monoamine oxidized A, it's called. The warrior gene. The yeah. warrior gene. And, uh, and so the, there was a guy, basically, he was a convicted murderer. The, there was, he did, uh, underwent a genetic scan. It was found that he had this gene, and, and his lawyers pleaded that this meant that he shouldn't be executed. This was in the US. He uh, shouldn't be executed because he has a genetic uh, predisposition to violence and aggression, and therefore it's not his fault. Uh, I don't think they actually tried to get him off, you know, completely like, you know, innocent walk away. But they just wanted him to sort of be in incarcerated rather than executed. And mm. the judge, to their to credit, credit. Yeah. <laughs> said, uh-uh, you're not getting that one. And then there's, uh, there's, there's, there's interplay between genes as well. So I read an instructive example about two genes, one called uh, SERT and one called BDNF. And SERT um, essentially... So is related to depression, so it kind of seems to mean that you learn negative lessons more readily, and that then leads to you more likely to becoming depressed. Um, so if you have that gene, but then you also have BDNF, uh, and, and like a, a specific um, variety of, of BDNF. BDNF means that your, your neurons uh, don't grow and, and work as effectively as they should. Um, and in isolation, either of those things are quite bad, but together, they kind of cancel out each other's effect. So the, the, the kind of negative lessons that the SERT gene is trying to teach you, the BDNF gene then means you don't really learn them very well. <laughs> and so you end up being absolutely fine. Um, and that's so you don't just want one, one or the other? You, want you don't both. want one or the other. You go, give me the lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, it's fine. Because uh, they, they, they sort of cancel each other out. Yeah. Um, and that's, you know, one very sort of basic example of genetic interplay. I think it's a really important thing because in this film, I hope if you haven't seen it, you know, stay for the screening. Um, it's, 
genetic determinism is sort of written into this future society. And Uma Thurman's character is just totally believes everything that's written in her genome. And, and the, the director of the film, um, a guy called Andrew Nichol. Andrew right? Nichol, yeah. Um, he, uh, he said, you know, she would lie down and die at the appointed moment of her death, you know, that was given to her at her birth because she didn't want to, you know, she believed in it so wholeheartedly that this had to be the thing that she obeyed almost. And, and the other, other character, Ethan Hawke's character, is saying, no, you know, let's not, let's not submit to that. And I think it's a really important thing that we, as a society, as genetic engineering comes around, as, as we start to hear more about genes, as we do start to get more of a handle on genes, that we never allow them to be, you know, dictating who we are or excusing how we behave. But similarly, not to be enslaved by cultural determinism. No, there is that, too. Um, I mean, I'm not quite sure about the... Um, uh, Professor Steve's uh, radical indeterminism. That's kind of halfway between cultural determinism and genetic determinism, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think, you know, the, you have to accept that there are certain, certain things out there that, you know, are... Influences. Influences, that's a yeah, good word. Yeah, yeah. Uh, any, any questions at this, at this point? Yes, lady here. Back to um, genetic traits. Yes. My father's father was a heavyweight boxer. Yes. He had two sons and a daughter. Mm -hmm. The children he had had four sons and one daughter. Yeah. The following generation had one girl and three daughters. The only boxer is my daughter. <laughs> just, just building up a nice family tree in my head. <laughs> so four generations and before the boxing gene came up and it's what sex. Well, let me, let me just stop you right there and say there is no boxing gene. But what there will be, there will be genetic, um, there'll be genetic tendencies towards being good at aerobic activity, for instance. There will be possibly even aggression there. There might be um, some sort of genetic influences that might shape some kinds of these things. They won't be, I don't think, gender determined. No. But what will be going on is a cultural thing uh, and the sort of environmental factors about how you're brought up or even maybe even what stories you're hearing about your grandparents and, and previous generations and, and that cultural history will actually shape you much much more and shape what you end up doing uh, much more strongly than your genes will I would say as a quantum physicist. Were you um, <laughs> never tempted to box yourself? No. no? There we go. Ah. <laughs> So it might have come in handy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, we'll go on to uh, question number three, um, which is probably the most. Oh yeah, Max. Yeah, you, you make the rules, so. Max. You make yeah. the rules. Is, this is going to be uh, why haven't you stuck to the script? <laughs> I don't know, Max. <laughs> Hello. You've done very well. Um, Thanks. Keep it up. What, before we move on, I just wanted to know, because it all sounds very, very complicated, this whole kind of genes interacting with genes, genes and environment, all this kind of stuff. Do you think, as two... Legends. Legends, two kind of science people, that we will ever actually figure it out, or is it just too complicated? Because every individual is going to be so unique that you cannot test for it in their lab, and it's a very hard question to answer, but do you think we will? The thing that I find interesting is that we're learning more and more, and so epigenetics, I think, is, is sort of where, where we're focusing our efforts at the moment. And that, in combination with CRISPR, which allows you to make such fine adjustments to exactly the, the, the part of the genome that you want to adjust, 
plus then huge data sets that might be available, then plus machine learning. I think we will start to be able to, as, you know, as the gentleman was saying, actually make really quite significant advances in, in terms of understanding more complex traits, I suspect. I, I Which think isn't to say we're ever going to fully understand it or be able to control it, because we're never going to be able to really control all of those environmental factors and, you know, your nutrition, like access to education, all those kind of things that really shape a person's personality. But I think we will get quite a good handle on the genetic components. I think machine learning is probably going to make quite a bit of difference here because it's going to be about mining data yeah. for, for you know, specific patterns of information. I think what needs to happen is my big project where we just dump a load of newborn babies on an island and really control their environment and understand their genetics completely and kind of keep them in isolation for most of the time so that they're you know, in a position where we can really, really sort of look at what behaviours they exhibit without influence from others. And somehow why people do you, say you can't do this. Why do you think sometimes um, people are a bit suspicious of scientists? I don't know. <laughs> But, I mean, that, I mean, it's an example of exactly the kind of experiment you would need to do in order to be able to actually pin down all of this stuff. Because as people just go about their normal lives, living within their families and their communities and their cultures, the variation that gets induced in, mm. in terms of behaviour and outcomes and career choices and illnesses, you know, you, can't, you, you, you would have to control the, pollu the pollution in the environment. You'd have to be sampling all of their food uh, to know what they were eating and what chemicals were going into their bodies. It's an incredibly complex thing. So all we can get is the broad brush thing. I honestly don't think that we'll get much beyond the broad brush sort of mm. sense of, you know, yes, we can find the gene for, you know, cystic fibrosis or whatever. And, you know, yes, we can do this and we can see that gene does this. But actually, that's a kind of drop in the ocean of all of this stuff. Okay, so on to question number three, which is the probably the most contentious, should we use genetics to make the perfect human? Um, and obviously this has quite a, um, quite a dark history. Um, the term is eugenics, and uh, it's actually got a, a much longer history than I think people tend to associate eugenics just with the, with the Nazis. Um, but the kind of concept of eugenics has been around for ages. Plato talked about it, talked about breeding the good with the good and the bad with the bad and then disposing of the offspring of the bad couplings, which is quite lively. Um, <laughs> the, the, term, um, the term eugenics was coined by uh, Francis Galton in the 1800s. I think, um, and it's just about kind of improving, improving the quality of the stock. It's kind of the, is, is, is what it means. And what's really interesting is that social Darwinists um, in the early 20th century were extremely keen on this. And whilst we are very ready to just think Nazis, Nazis, in the US, the first sterilization law uh, was passed in 1907 in, in Indiana, and it was intended to give prisoners vasectomies um, and therefore present the transmission of degenerate traits. The president at the time, Teddy Roosevelt, said criminals should be sterilised and feeble-minded persons forbidden to leave offspring behind them. By 1936, 31 states in America had some form of eugenics or sterilisation law in place, which I find absolutely extraordinary because, weirdly, America don't talk about that very much. Um, <laughs> but it was, it, it was, I mean, a horrible term to use, but it was very much in vogue 
at that time. Yeah. Um, and the Nazis obviously took it on. And we don't need to say much more about that, I don't think. But it does mean that there's a kind of spectre of eugenics hanging over any kind of genetic enhancement. But that is sort of where we're at at the moment. That's where the, the, the science is going. It's talking about genetically enhancing well, or, or, or selecting, so yeah. selecting embryos, yeah. for example. In IVF selection, we are making genetic choices, aren't we? Yeah. And it, I mean, it's worth saying as well uh, that in some ways you make uh, choices about genetic selection when you choose the partner with whom you're going to have children. So um, you know, you, there are certain evolved traits within us that will look for certain things in a partner that, that you know, will actually produce uh, a pretty good genetic outcome. Uh, and one of the classic things is, is actually uh, your immune system is kind of, you, you want your partner's immune system to be different to yours and complementary to yours. And you actually get this uh, by uh, kissing them. You kind of, you get this sort of sense of, uh, of smell that comes from them. And actually that is linked to their, uh, the state of their immune system and, and how well uh, it matches with yours. And the experiments have been done to kind of show that, that uh, this is, you know, again, you know, the genetics are in there that create this immune system. And somehow, you know, we have evolved to be able to kind of uh, detect these kinds of things. And of course, you know, beauty and symmetry and everything else is, is also related to genetics. But we have got to the point now where we can do this at a much finer scale. And so we can go into a cell and, and we can get the DNA and we can chop it up now. I remember the first time I kissed my wife, I thought to myself, oh, that immune system's different to mine. <laughs> <laughs> Down on one knee straight away. Um, to, to, to give the ring, obviously. Um, so, uh, so we um, need to talk about the, how we're actually going in and editing yeah, the, the, so we've the, got this technology called CRISPR-Cas9, uh, which we've stolen from a bacterium. Or, or I say stolen. Well, we kind of did. Borrowed. We, we borrowed it from, from bacteria. Uh, and they have a way of dealing with viruses, which is to be able to kind of take the virus DNA and kind of inactivate it and chop things out. So, so we have this ability now to take you know, the, the bacterial self-protection mechanisms and use them to go into our own DNA and take uh, a portion of that DNA and we can put markers on it and kind of choose which portion that we want to take out and, and we can chop that out using a, what are effectively a pair of sort of molecular scissors called Cas9. Uh, and, and using CRISPR and Cas9 together, we are able to make edits to the genome. And then we can actually sort of, you know, replace the, the, the bit that's cut out with something that we do want to be in there. You know, so, so we might cut out something where a gene is actually faulty, not quite working properly and put in the right thing. And then we are able now to implant that back into, say, an embryo and have, uh, it, have these things develop. Yeah, which is quite different. In the, in the film, uh, hopefully you'll see later, they, they talk about choosing the, the right um, embryo to go with at an IVF stage. So you go to your sort of friendly local geneticist and then he says, well, you should pick this, this one. This is, this is you, but the best possible version of you. Whereas what we're saying now is we're not just limited we to the genetic material yeah. of the parents. You can just say, and we'd like some new material put in that's slightly that we think is going to make an improvement. And there is a, a huge, huge difference between somatic editing and germline editing. So somatic editing um, 
isn't heritable. Yeah, so um, we can we can fix the genes within. Uh, I say we can. I mean, in specific in, circumstances, in yes. a person who might have a defect that we want to be able to to help. Mm -hmm. And in other cases, we can take the sort of germline material effectively in a, an, an embryo. Uh, we could alter the sperm, alter the egg, and actually then uh, grow that embryo and have that embryo grow up into a uh, human being that no longer passes on, say, the genetic defect that, that their ancestor, their forebears, all had. And we've actually seen this very recently uh, coming out of Oregon University. It caused quite a stir uh, because you know, we had the first case of being able to do this uh, within, uh, with a gene that, that causes heart defects and causes her early heart attacks. And, um, and actually, nobody really wants that in their, in their family history, I would say. And so, you know, it, it was a good choice in terms of, you know, let's experiment with this technology. Uh, and and you, so you take uh, the, the faulty gene and you cut it out with the CRISPR-Cas9 and you, and, you sort of, and you can put that back into the embryo and you, and you can grow the human being that doesn't have this, where all their forebears had this genetic... Uh, uh, trait and uh, it and it won't pass down the generations. Uh, we're not allowed to grow that embryo yet. It's worth saying, uh, but but it's interesting that you know we have um, all kinds of screening for embryos already. So we have the Gattaca scenario where you know we we do um, give people the choice to look for Down syndrome. Uh, you know we can look for cystic fibrosis, Tay Sachs, Huntington. You know we we have a various a, a load of sort of genetic screenings that we do. Um, you know, we don't screen yet for blue eyes and blonde hair kind of sort of thing. But you can imagine in the future, as we get more things, you might be able to say, well, this embryo looks like it you know, has a high prob probability of doing such and such. But being able to go in and fix something that's wrong, and I say wrong because I think you know, if you have a, a tendency to drop dead in your 40s rather than you know, much later on, I think people would genuinely want that to be fixed in their family. But... It opens I think it, the door, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, um, sort of going back to what the gentleman first said, that the issue is how confident are we that that bit of genetic material that we're removing or changing is just responsible for the thing that we think it's responsible for. Yeah. So we think that we've got rid of this heart defect issue, but the system is so complicated that we might have missed something. Yeah, and, and, then, and, then, yeah. and it's lost. So we're losing it from the human genome. So we're losing, deliberately losing diversity from the human genome. And I think one of the good things, I, I, I hear all that, and, and it's true that you know, we don't know what you know, effects you'll get long term. Um, you don't know what sort of you know, happens over here when you, when you switch this. Because as we've you know, been saying all along this evening, you know, these things interplay, it's incredibly complicated. But I, I think you know, there is, it's worth noting that there is a huge caution here amongst the people who are doing this as well. So, so there is a kind of you know, voluntary, almost self-censorship in terms of what they're willing to do, what they, they know is safe to do, what is acceptable to do. And I think it's a, a conversation we all need to be involved in as well. Cathy Nyakan at the Francis Crick Institute in, in London has been given a licence to do germline manipulation with CRISPR. Yes. Up yeah. to seven days? Is yeah, it seven-day yeah, embryos? Yeah. Um, so it feels like we're taking baby steps, but we are... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but Sorry. it is kind of, you know, it is happening. One of my favourite things about 
Gatka um, is that when they uh, were doing the advertising for it, they took out a one-page ad in the New York Times and a couple of other papers um, that didn't mention the film at all. It just had a picture of a baby and said, children made to order. And then it gave you a, a list of traits that you could choose from and then a free phone number to call. Um, and according at least to the, the film company, was Sony, they got 50,000 calls on the first morning. <laughs> Um, of people just like, yes, please, I love it. <laughs> um, so you kind of feel like there is an appetite. Like people, if, if you could give them a kind of shopping list of traits, they would, they would go for it. Yeah, well, but uh, then yeah. you immediately get into a horrible kind of ethical situation, which is, A, should we be doing it? If we are doing it, who is it going to be available to? Yeah, there is that. Um, I would say, you know, looking at my own children, I'd definitely opt for that now. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, we put all this ethical stuff uh, to the Professor of Bioethics at Princeton University and Laureate Professor at the University of Melbourne, Peter Singer. Clearly, the society that Gattaca portrays is very different from the society we're living in now, and it would take a number of different steps for us to get anywhere near that. But I suppose that having mapped and sequenced the human genome could be seen as a start towards understanding more about what particular genes do and therefore being able to select, perhaps at the stage of the embryo, using in vitro fertilization, which children we might have. Like most other parents of their day, they were determined that their next child would be brought into the world in what has become the natural way. Your extracted eggs, Marie, have been fertilized with Antonio's sperm. After screening, we are left, as you see, with two healthy boys and two very healthy girls. Naturally, no critical predispositions to any of the major inheritable diseases. All that remains is to select the most compatible candidate. Many people are worried about the idea that our genes should determine our opportunities. They see this as, in some way, akin to racism, as akin to saying if you're not of the preferred race, you're a minority race, a subordinate race, then you, know, you don't get the opportunities, as of course has happened in, in many societies, happened in the southern states of the United States most uh, notoriously. And uh, they see a society based on genetic selection as being in some way similar to that, although it would, of course, be more precise um, in terms of the genes that it was looking at. But it would still say, well, you don't have the right genes, so you don't get to go to the select university. Uh, you're just going to be educated at some lower level and therefore will live your life doing labouring kinds of jobs rather than jobs that require higher training or intellect and, and you'll become the dregs whereas the others will be the elite. It's, it's that kind of society that people uh, obviously and, and for good reason want to avoid uh, and see genetic selection as paving a way towards. Like many others in my situation, I moved around a lot in the next few years getting work where I could. I must have cleaned half the toilets in the state. I belong to a new underclass, no longer determined by social status or the color of your skin. Welcome to Gattaca, gentlemen. No, we now have discrimination down to a science. All right, there's your cleaner material. Start from the front, clean all the way back. 
And I want to see my smiling face on that floor. What about you, Your Majesty? You dreaming of space? Come here. As with uh, many cases, there are some clear situations where there's a, a clear difference in getting rid of some undesirable characteristic and promoting a desirable one. And then there are some fuzzy cases in the middle. So, for example, uh, if, as we do, we do prenatal screening for people who are at risk of having, let's say, a child with Tay-Sachs disease, a genetic disease that um, leads to the uh, death of the child within the very early years of life. So we screen for that, and if uh, couples wish to, they can terminate the pregnancy. So uh, I think that's very widely accepted in our society. On the other hand, there would be some things where it would be a little harder to say whether it's a negative or positive. Suppose that we develop some knowledge about genes that uh, have a tendency to lead to depression. Uh, depression is a, is a terrible condition that is responsible for a, a great deal of, of suffering in the world. And most people would say if we could eliminate serious clinical depression, that would be an excellent thing to do. But uh, if we do discover those genes, and let's say there's not a sharp line as to what is uh, clinical depression and what is not, but uh, generally we discover a cluster of genes that affect whether a person is likely to be in a depressed mood much of the time or not, uh, and we decide to eliminate that, then we will be producing a, a population where people are generally uh, in a better mood, uh, you know, enjoying themselves more than the average in the world as it is today. Most people would probably think that's a good thing too, but it is an example that shows that it's difficult to draw a sharp line between removing negative characteristics and enhancing uh, the population by selecting for more positive characteristics. What do you want to say about that? I am very... Tired? No, I... <laughs> there is that. Um, I, I have a big problem with the kind of whole idea of what perfection is meant to be. So, you know, people might talk about, you know, we want to fix this and we want to fix that, but... I don't know where you draw the line, and I, I like evolution's kind of natural solution to, to what it means to be a human being, and I, I have great problems with you know, this idea that somehow there's some perfect ideal that we're meant to be striving towards, and we're meant to get rid of this, and we're meant to be more like that, and we don't want children who have this, and, and actually that's a very, very difficult and, and dangerous path to go down, I would say, and, and, but it's one that we have to face, it's a conversation we have to have. You know, when, when this film first came out, the geneticists were saying, oh, you know, this is ridiculous, you know, scenarios, and, and you know, it's, it's not like that at all, and, and they're sort of saying that we're going to be, you know, causing these huge problems, and we're not, and actually, you know, um, in 2011, a bunch of scientists got together to choose the best movies of all time, the most scientifically plausible ones. And Gattaca came out on top because, as it turned out, that everything you know, that the film predicted was starting to happen and we were having to face these kinds of things. And, and the, the thing is that these scientists are, they are worrying about it. So um, Professor Jennifer Doudna, who's one of the people who was involved um, with the kind of discovery or the utility of CRISPR-Cas9, um, talks about having a recurring dream where she walks into a, a dark room and there's a, there's a table and there's a guy sitting in silhouette 
at the back and he's very interested in, in her work and wants, wants her to tell him all about it. And then he turns round and it's Hitler. Um, and, which tells you that she's, she's concerned, you know. Like, <laughs> there's some stuff happening here. Um, before we kind of uh, wrap up and try and um, draw some conclusions, any more questions from the floor? Yes, lady at the front here. He goes ambling, ambling <laughs> as ever. Thank you. Um, I'm finding it very interesting, and I'm um, more interested in the ethics of well, what you can do and what you can't do within the realms of disease. My mother's got motor neuron disease, mm -hmm. so in, when you're saying what is the perfect being, I'm quite interested that you say, yes, you can identify this gene and we can cut it off. Um, and you're saying, well, actually, no, we're not. We've got to leave it. But on the reverse side, you've seen someone and you can't even let them end their life. Um, I know that's another debate. Yeah. Looking how they're going to decline and what they've got, how they're going to end. So, uh, I think it's exactly what Professor Peter was saying about the difficulty of finding that line um, between getting rid of characteristics that we would sort of all agree were negative, and characteristics, maybe not the, the right word, but conditions. So if it was possible to eliminate motor neurone disease, that feels like a fairly straightforward thing where we'd have a consensus to go, that seems, that seems sensible. But it's not, it's not black and white on some issues. So I think on, on motor neurone disease it probably is. Um, yeah. But there are some where you, you could be talking about them saying, I feel like now we're just trying to enhance the population by selecting sort of positive characteristics. Whereas what you're talking about is removing a negative characteristic. Mm. But there's going to be a big grey area of characteristics where there will be a lot of debate over whether that is positive, negative, just sort of something you can, you can deal with, something we should have. Um, and that's, that's where it gets difficult. And, you know, so who gets to make these decisions about, you know, what we do? I mean, I, I tend to be very positive about trusting um, that scientists will kind of make good choices in these terms. But actually, you also have a lot of private biotechnology institutes that, that may well decide that actually, you know, the best use for this in terms of, you know, giving the money back to the venture capitalists who are supporting them is to, you know, to offer genetic tests and screening and enhancement for rich people to have better children or, or selling these products to companies insurance companies etc who will then genetically screen you before offering you your insurance and probably hike out your premiums if they see some stuff that they don't like in there or if you're going to you know a job interview and they screen you and you find that you're predisposed to certain health problems whether that would mean they'd be less likely to offer the job to you it's very easy to see that kind of thing happening Mm. Um, well, and, and, you know, we're accelerating towards the time when people will say, oh, I'd quite like to get some genetic uh, screening or, or, you know, have my DNA analysed for ancestry purposes or anything else. And, you know, you have to make sure that you read the small print about how that's being used and stored and taken forward and, and whether actually that's going into a database that will then be used to inform perhaps, you know, AI algorithms uh, but and, you know, whether you'll lose sort of control of that data and your genetics actually is associated with you and your identity and your national insurance number on a database somewhere just because you were interested to know, you know what your sort of genetic 
ancestry was. So, so these are all things that we need to think about and talk about. But I'm kind of interested to know whether people sort of feel like um, this is happening to them, happening around them, or whether you know they, they sort of feel like scientists will just um, do what they do, or whether you know the, the policy things will be in place, the, the legislation will be in place to protect them. I, I'm not confident about anything other than the scientists actually having a modicum of kind of morality about this. Anyone? Oh, uh, yeah, yes, lady here, and then gentleman there, and then we'll probably have to finish. I'm just sort of like thinking about like how, how would you actually see this sort of like if this happened and progressed in the future, so say like 20 years down the time, like obviously like the, the scientists scientists are one side, but things like different countries and lawmakers, because I'm sort of envisioning this future where say like like even now, like if this was a thing, I'd think that some countries would agree to, you know, maybe certain genetic changes and some wouldn't and like do you think like people would sort of have to get together and work work out this problem as a whole because it could be like a massive problem you know people traveling to different countries to get different genetic changes made and stuff like that yeah i think that's uh it's a really a really good point i think that there will inevitably be some places where you can go and get stuff done because it's profitable. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, generally speaking, like you said, there was a moratorium on germline editing um, that was triggered by some germline editing that was done in China in 2015, and the kind of scientific community or the, the geneticists got together and said, let's not do that, and everyone kind of agreed. But then I suppose the dystopian worry is, is everyone just saying that they're agreeing? Is it actually going on? Um, you know, behind behind closed doors, and the truth is, you you don't really no, you know. Don't. And as soon as as soon as you bring money into it, it complicates it further. And you do, but you will need international cooperation to to legislate this stuff. I don't think there's any other. I think you will, but if you're in the situation where you know you know where you've got somebody with a, a genetic disorder that you want to be able to cure, and in your country that's not allowed, and actually you know there's promise there's somewhere else that you will be able to go and have you know some kind of genetic engineering to. That's going to be very hard to stop the kind of genetic tourism, yeah. effectively. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, we're already seeing it with stem cell therapies. In fact, and people are travelling to South America to get you know these unregulated, unlicensed, unproven therapies. Uh, just because they have to go there to where there is no licensing and regulation in order to get them, because people are, you know, are that desperate to do to do these things. So I'm sure we'll see these things come up. Uh, yeah, quickly, this gentleman here. Just quickly, um, I was just running a, a very quick future shock scenario through my head from what you were saying, and my worry was you only learn via genetics through other people's genetic mistakes, don't you? You only know there's an issue when the issue flags itself up with cystic fibrosis and what have you. And the thing with, I was worried about, could there be a, a scenario where the, an elite class is so genetically well-engineered that they artificially keep an underclass so they can harvest these mistakes? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a great film. Um, <laughs> so, uh, just noting that down. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's... You kind of hope that, that... I don't know. I mean, yes, that is possible. Yeah. Um, it feels unlikely, but... Um, well, I mean, you, know, yeah, you, I mean, you can go to cloning technologies and just, you know... So the great uh, book, Never Let Me Go, where you know, people are cloned in order to provide organs. You can imagine you know, people can be cloned in order, or you know, engineered in order to kind of be experimented on and... and yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Great, great note to end on. Um, <laughs> Just to, uh, to summarise our three questions, um, 
First one was, are we more than our genes? Yes. Yes. Much more. Um, can we use genetics to predict our destiny? No. 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 Uh, should we use genetics to make the perfect human? Yeah, why not? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that was the answer that we came to, actually. I think we said it's complicated. Let's have some fun. <laughs> Um, well, thank you very much for, uh, for coming along and listening. I hope that was, um, hope that was interesting and enjoyable. We will be... I you say it. You said a bit about the book. <sighs> we will be signing copies of our book at the back of the hall. Uh, they are available for purchase. And uh, we hope you buy them, to be honest. Yeah, that, I mean, that's literally why we're here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I think we can be open about that. It's, I mean, it's, who knows if it's good. Um, we, we like it. It's got a nice cover, and we talk about ten different films. It's this kind of thing. It's this kind of, so Gattaca's in there, um, so you can read some more about it. We'll, we'll just be there. Thank you very much.